Well, hey, everybody, if you will, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. It's going to be our, one of our texts today. And the other will be 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And um, so, as you all know, uh, we typically, in our house churches, do verse by verse, chapter by chapter study of God's Word. We call it exegetical study of Scripture. Um, we have, in first Sundays, been taking some time to address very specific doctrines. Now, as we do that, we are still doing an exegetical approach to Scripture, but rather than approach one chapter at a time, we're trying to have a look at the whole counsel of Scripture as to what it says about these particular topics. And so, many of you remember, we did a series on the five solas of the Reformation. We talked about how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, revealed by Scripture alone. And now we're taking time to go through the attributes of God. And we've done this because we want to make sure we are worshiping God in accordance with how He has revealed Himself. We have a tendency to make up things about God or assume things about God. We are born idolaters that need to be corrected into right worship. And so what we're doing in going through this series on the attributes of God is piece by piece reading about what God has said about himself so we can say, okay, this is the God we worship. Everybody with us? Good. So when we start talking about the attributes of God, today we're going to be going through the attributes related to God's sovereignty. Anytime we're talking about God's attributes, though, I always like to clarify, we divide them into two different categories. One is what we would call the communicable attributes of God. These are the things for which there is some human parallel. God has them in perfection or infinitely, and we have some example that he has given in us in that he has stamped them on us in that we reflect his image. So, for instance, today we are going to talk about his power. God is powerful perfectly and infinitely, but he has given us such a thing as strength. He's our source of it. But we can say, okay, you know, I can lift this chair. I have something of strength in a finite way. I can say, okay, yes, I have this thing, but not anywhere on the level that God has it, right? Communicable attribute, humans reflect somehow. An incommunicable attribute is one in which there is no parallel in humanity. It is only true of God. Um, For instance, aseity. I know I usually use this one as the example, but aseity is that attribute of God that is him not needing anything from anyone. He is the source of all things. He doesn't doesn't need anything. That's aseity. That's an incommunicable attribute. None of us have that. Only God has it. Make sense? So a quick little review. God's incommunicable attributes are his aseity, his immutability, that he is unchanging. His unity, that he is uniquely one in nature, even though we believe in the Trinity, that there are three persons, one divine essence. He is infinite. When it comes to communicable attributes, we talk about his spirituality, his intellect, his morality, and of course his sovereignty. Cool? All right, so we are going to today discuss God's sovereign will and his sovereign power. Now, When I get into this stuff, I'm going to just let you know, um, we don't get very polished. I'm teaching through these things so that we can understand them in accordance with God's word. Um, You all know that like I, this is not fancy today. This is making sure we understand something true about God. But I always like to say, if you have a question, if something doesn't make sense, you are free to ask. I know that we're not in a house, we're not in a living room, but we still like to keep that vibe. So ask in accordance with what you want. So, God's sovereign will. 
When we talk about God's sovereign will, we are referring to the fact that nothing can thwart his plan. God has a will. He is bringing to pass what he has planned from eternity. When we say sovereign will, we mean that by which God puts into effect all that he has designed or purposed. He wills it. It will happen. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. God will accomplish his plan. One thing that we want to point out related to this is that God's will is free, but it is bound to his nature. Thus, nothing limits God's will save for his own character. This is an important point because we are unfortunately in a time where many, even in evangelical circles, will say things like, well, your unbelief blocks God from doing something. Or God wanted to do this miracle, but you didn't have enough faith. That's not how it works. If God wants to do something, he gets it done because he decrees it. All right. More on that in a second and how that relates to human decisions, because there is some role that we play. But just pointing all that out, God's will is sovereign. So let's look at some passages here. Um, Daniel 4.35. Anybody remember who King Nebuchadnezzar is from Daniel 4? Nebuchadnezzar is interesting because arguably at the time he is the most sovereign human leader there is. Right At this time, Nebuchadnezzar, is, he's got this empire, he's a big deal. One day, Nebuchadnezzar walks out and says, look at all this that I've done, I'm awesome. And God judges him immediately and says, you think you're something? I am going to show you you're nothing. And so he goes and under God's judgment, runs out and lives as a wild animal. His fingers, fingernails grow like claws, his hair gets all shaggy, and he crawls around and eats grass like a beast. He is absolutely humiliated for his pride. And then after a time, God gives him back his senses and he is restored. And this is what he says. This king over many kingdoms, after being humbled, says this about God. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can, say, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Understand what he's saying here? He says, God does not make decisions based on any of us. He does what he wants to do. He says, nothing can stay his hand. That means if he wants to do something, nothing, no one, no other force can block him from moving. The most powerful king on the earth just got made to crawl around on all fours and eat grass like a beast. And God said, yeah, that's because I'm in charge, sucker, not you. Really important for us to understand this. He even says, all the inhabitants of the earth, uh, among, uh, excuse me, uh, he says, and none can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody gets to accuse God of anything. I just think it's worth noting when the most powerful king on earth says this of God, it helps us understand just how big of a deal. Nobody can stop God from completing his will. Everybody with me? Cool. <clears throat> A couple of other passages here. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, uh, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Anybody following that? It says that according to God's sovereign will, according to his own counsel, he decided to do salvation as he wanted to. You know, God did not sit down with a few people and say, Hey, how would you like me to do salvation? 
You know, maybe could you say some incantations? Would that be nice? What do you guys, and they didn't give suggestions. He said, no, I am going to buy you back with my son's death because there's no other sacrifice good enough and it's going to be my way in salvation. And then God predestines in accordance with his will to do what he wants related to salvation. That's a really big deal. That means, as we've said, now, now we have in, uh, in Daniel 4, we have this great king saying God does whatever he wants. Paul in Ephesians is saying God did whatever he wants related to salvation. Reading on in Romans 9, Verse 18, it says, So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. A little side note, if you ever just want to like, kind of get your mind blown, read Romans 8 all the way through like 11 or 12. We have God doing stuff that a lot of us didn't think he would do. And regardless of where you land on the Calvin, non-Calvin spectrum, semi-Calvin spectrum, as is the case for many of us, we have to acknowledge that God just does whatever he wants. Understanding what we're getting at here, this is God's sovereign will. If you're in the underground seminary course, you'll remember that we've referenced this thing we call God's sovereign decree. It is his willed plan that he is going to bring about. And so if you want to look into this a little bit more, we're taking that class. We have verses or we have videos online. Everybody with me so far? Cool. All right. Job 42.2. Anybody remember the story of Job and what happens to him. Anybody remember some of the like major things that happened to Job? He lost all he owned. Loses everything. Little thing, did, did Job do anything wrong to deserve that happening to him? No, not at all. Right? So anybody remember how the conversation with Job goes? We have people come up to Job and they try to give him advice and they're like, well, maybe you did this and maybe you did that and maybe you messed it up this way. And every time he's like, nope, guys, nope, nope, I've done this. At some point, though, he acknowledges he hasn't really sinned to bring this upon himself, but he's pretty bummed out. And so he starts questioning these things about God in his frustration. Never rejects God, never lacks trust. He's just frustrated. Does anybody remember how God answers him? Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes we like to think that like, oh, God will, God has a plan he's working out and he'll explain it to me later and then I'll know exactly why this hard thing happened. The worst things imaginable happened to Job. All of them, 100% a part of God's plan. Right? There's nothing that he gets to do to change God's mind about this. God says, all right, Satan, do whatever you want to him. Just spare his life. And just suffering upon suffering upon suffering. And so you would think that when it was all over, God would say, Hey, Job, here's what was going on. I just needed to, I was showing my glory and I was proving to Satan that you really are my child, right? He could have done that. God could have. He doesn't have to because he's God. And so instead, what does he do? He asked him a bunch of rhetorical, yeah. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What, like, tell me since you know how to draw Leviathan, draw sea monsters out with a hook. He asks all of these questions, and not one of them is an answer to why he did what he did. But every one of them explain that he is the God of creation that does not have to give an answer to anyone for anything. So now tell me this, though. Was Job comforted when that happened? Anybody remember? He's, he 
puts his hand over his mouth and he just says, I got no business speaking. Right? And then God restores him, which, by the way, he didn't have to do. I just want to point out here that what happens is God, and I would argue that God is actually comforting him, but he's reminding him who he is. And so as we're facing trials, I want you to point out Job 42.2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is where, this is where Job lands. He's simply acknowledging who God is and trusting him in it. Hopefully, like this gives me comfort because some like the thinking is like, oh, and we're going to get to this in a second. But like some of us would like think, well, if I do this, then God will do this and then I won't have this problem anymore. Or if I do this, I'll feel better. And then, you know, God will answer this in this way. None of that do I see here. What I do see is God saying, here's who I am. Just trust me for who I am. Yes, honey. Yeah. Yeah, he pointed him out. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, he pointed him out and said, hey, check out Job. You want to cause him to suffer so I can be glorified? I don't think he laughed. No. Yeah, that was emphasis added by me. Sorry. Um, reading on a couple of other passages that we're just going to highlight here. We're, we're trying to look at a few key passages. There are so many more, but I didn't want to be in just one passage and us miss the fact that this is the whole counsel of Scripture. This is not some isolated verse that we can take out of context. This is in the whole counsel of Scripture. God's sovereign will is proclaimed. In Matthew 10, 29, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He's like, you know what? If this God of creation cares about the cheapest birds that are available for sale... And he knows and plans for every one of them that falls to the ground, how much more for his children. James 1.18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his spirit, or of his creatures. I just want to point out, all of this is referencing that it is by his will he did something. Man. So a big debate that seems to come up is related to God's will and human will. Like, how does this work out then? Because I think we can say we, we have responsibility. We have a will. And so this big question comes up, and I promise I'm not going to open up the can of Calvinism and lay out all the worms of the Reformation today. Um, but I do think it's worth pointing out. We need to understand this to a certain degree. How does my human responsibility relate? One thing we must point out is that by his will, God has given humans limited freedom though he is ultimately in control. Little point is that when he gave us the ability to do things, even that came from his will. That was an act of his sovereignty. And we can see in passages like Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 10, there is such a thing as temptation. There seems to be an opportunity for us to respond with obedience or not. And so I just need to make sure we're understanding this. When we're talking about God's will, we need to understand two different, at least two different types of God's will are referred to. One would be his prescriptive will, and the other one would be his decreative will. When we talk about prescriptive will, we are talking about his commands. So we might say, you know, when God says, hey, don't eat that fruit, that's a command. He's not giving us a choice He's giving us a command that we can either rebel against or obey. Making sense? So when we start talking about some of these things and people say, well, you know, if if God is 
will is sovereign, why doesn't he just snap his fingers and make everybody happy right now? And well, the truth is that happiness is found in him and that we are probably rebelling against him at times. Many of us are rebelling against him. So understanding what's going on here, he has a prescriptive will that we can disobey. And I always want to make it clear, he's not giving us a choice. He is giving us a command and it's either obedience or rebellion. Right? And then he's given us what we call a decreative will. These are the things that are going to happen. Now, not time to address all this today, but please do check out Underground Seminary. We get into the fact that in God's decreative will, he's got a plan, and he's working together even the free acts of evil men. Whole debate as to what does it mean that a human has will and can choose because he's bent towards sin. No time to get into that right now, but Underground Seminary, we get into it, so... Huge plug for Underground Seminary. Everybody with me on all this? Cool? All right. So if we're going to understand God's will, it doesn't make full sense unless we also understand his power. So we talk about God's sovereign power. We are talking about what we call omnipotence, that God has all power and uses it to bring to pass his will. First Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. <clears throat> David gets up to speak. In verse 10, he says, Therefore... David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O God, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Following that, what's happening here is David is pointing out that everything from riches to honor to strength and might, all of it comes as a result of God's hand. It is all his greatness and his power, his victory, his majesty, and David's response is worship. Just a little point. We're going to get to this in a second. It is worth noting that as David lauds all of these great things about God, he ends with worship. Cool? All right. Pointing out again, Job 42.2 where he mentions that God can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We have mentioned already that when we talk about the attributes of God, we can't parse them out separately, that they automatically overlap. Even today, when we're talking about God's will, his will is bound to his nature. God will not sin because he can't sin because part of his nature is righteousness. And so when we start talking about his sovereign will, we naturally have to talk about his sovereign power because they go together. It is his sovereign power that allows him to enact his will in accordance with what he has planned. So Jeremiah 32, 2, a good example of God makes a promise and then fulfills it. In Jeremiah 32, 22, it says, And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just pointing out, he promises a promised land. He promises all these things that generations later he brings to fulfillment. Revelation 19, 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of, a mighty, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Can you maybe just kind of point out, 
I'm going to point out, that we've looked at Chronicles, we've looked at Jeremiah, we've looked at Daniel, we've looked at epistles from Paul, we're looking at Revelation, and throughout the entirety of the Testaments, both old and new, there is this focus on how powerful God is and how he does things in accordance with his will, not anybody else's. This should allow us to say, okay, the whole council of Scripture is communicating this greatness of God all the way to the end for things that have yet to be fulfilled. Cool? So, a little question that I have is how do we respond to this now? Because sometimes when I talk about God's greatness, people are like, man, this means I'm really small. I'm like, yeah, that's, yeah pretty much. That's what it means. People have a really hard time with that. The more we lift up and explain how great God is, the more we see just how small and insignificant we are in comparison. And so for some people, that just freaks them out. They don't like that. And for others, it allows us to say, but, but he's my God. And he's taking care of me. I'm, I'm in. And so these two kind of things start to emerge. Like either I'm mad because I don't get to be God to some degree, or I'm comforted because I already knew I'm not God, and I'm really thankful to be his child. But all of this, we have to start thinking through, how does this play in with me and how I how I operate in the world in relation to his will. So, Sovereign Power continues, says, Since God always accomplishes his will, we have unlimited strength to do according to his will when we seek to do his will. So I'm going to say this real cautiously before we move forward. We are in a time, even in evangelical Christianity, where many are functioning as if they are pagans. Notice that in, in most pagan culture, the idea is that if you sacrifice something or if you get yourself into some altered mental state, that you will get something from a deity. You guys might remember when Elijah is with the prophets of Baal and they're slitting their wrists and they're crying out and there's this big thing because they're trying to get Baal to do something. And what does Jeremiah do? Pretty much nothing except ask God to move in accordance with what God already wanted to do. And this is why I have such an issue when people are like, oh, well, if you sow this seed gift, God will bring you healing. You don't get to manipulate God. Or when somebody says, well, you know, the reason why you haven't gotten your blessing is because you haven't mustered up enough faith. I'm like, well, I'm supposed to respond in faith, but I mean, I I have faith. I trust in who he is. You want me to like oomph it up more? I don't understand. Right? Or when someone comes along and says, you know, if you just repeat this phrase in worship, you'll enter into this different kind of place and you'll feel God's presence in a unique way. I'm like, what? That, no. There's nothing in scripturally we can point out to that. And every one of those things, note that I am asked to do something to manipulate God to respond as I want him to. That's just paganism. And I don't care if you put a thin veneer of Christianity on it. You can sing Jesus' name over and over again, hoping he's going to do something you want him to do. That is not how it works. That's just paganism. Glad we don't employ it here. I remember I had a friend of mine who worked at a Christian bookstore during the Prayer of Jabez time when that book was out and really popular. And he had somebody is buying some, I don't know, it was a plaque or something. And this lady leans over the counter and says, if you pray the Prayer of Jabez 25 times a day, God will give you whatever you want. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's just paganism. Here's what I want to point out. In every one of these things, I'm I'm giving you this 
kind of warning before I share this next thing. Because so quickly, when we share about how God really does have infinite power, that he works in and through us, as soon as I start saying that, people jump really quickly into, okay, well, how can I manipulate that for what I want? That's not what this is about. What this is about is God has a plan he is executing and you are either in rebellion against it or you are with him on it. He's going to get it done. The power that is given to you to do that is only when you are in his will and it's not for your fun little side thing. It's simply to accomplish his will. All right, cool. All that said, let's go to Philippians 4.13, one of the most misrepresented passages in all of God's word. Philippians 4.13, this classic phrase, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, that's kind of awesome, right? And then, you know, if you got that on a poster with like a soccer ball in the background, it makes you feel like, you can kick that goal, man. You can make that team. And while, sure, God could strengthen you to do that. Praise him. That's, that's great. Paul is writing this from prison. Paul's been snake bit, shipwrecked, beaten and left for dead, Paul, while accomplishing God's good pleasure, while obeying God, walking in his will, suffered greatly. He suffered loss. He suffered shipwrecked. He's hated by all the people that once liked him. It's a terrible situation. And so when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he actually, in context, reference, I know how to deal with things when I don't have anything or when I have a lot in sickness and in health. He's like, whatever it is, I can make it because he's strengthening me to do it. That's what this is about. Paul is saying, as I am in God's will, he's carrying me through to accomplish this. Praise him. He's writing from prison saying, this is great, guys, because he's carrying me through. Paul is not saying, wow, it's awesome. You know, I just prayed that Jabez prayer enough times and I got my Mercedes. Like, it's no, he's suffering. He's like, praise God, I'm, I'm in God's will and I'm suffering with him and he's carrying me through and he's joyful in it. Reading on, 1 John 5, 14 through 15, says, And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You just pay attention to that phrase. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That according to his will gets glossed over a lot. According to his will, he hears us. And we know that, if, that, excuse me, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Confident expectation that it will happen if it is in accordance with his will that I'm asking. John 15, 17, similarly, says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is that classic, like, I'm the vine, you are the branches passage. What he's saying is, if you are in my word enough, you are abiding in me and you are so full of me that when you ask something, it's, it's my very words that you are praying because you've been so steeped in my words that you're praying in accordance with God's word and I'm giving you what you want because now what you want is what I want. Huge stuff. So can, maybe we understand what's happening here. We're hoping to see that God's will is absolutely sovereign, that he is absolutely powerful to bring it to pass. My job is simply to be in obedience rather than, in a, than rebellion. With me? And when I am, everything that is needed to accomplish that will is there, not the least of which is the will for us to delight in him. So, 
always, we always end these little studies here with the very same thing. What should our response to this truth be? Our response is stated by Jesus in Mark 12, 29 and 31. When they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You understand that this command to love God is a command to delight in him? That like, it's not a, well, I'm forced to do this thing. To love is to delight. That this act of worship is not a, I'm just grudgingly acknowledging that God is God. It's, I get to enjoy him. Paul is writing a book on joy when he writes Philippians from jail, delighting in God. We see Peter reference suffering, and he's talking about the joy that comes with it. It's not joking around. It's not faking it. It's that I get to delight in the God of creation as I have been made to do. And so when I learn about his will and I learn about his power, I get to respond by saying, this is a great God who loves me. The question at hand then is, if we are not in love with God, then we're probably in rebellion against him. And so I'm just going to really briefly make sure we understand the gospel clearly. I know that many of us here know it. We talk about this great God and we think about how wonderful he is and how big he is. I mentioned that some of us are like, well, that stinks because I want to I be powerful. I want to have my will. I want to get what I want. I want to be cool. And God is saying, no, this is about my plan and my will. And either you get on board with that or you're my enemy. And most of us, well, not most of us, all of us are born enemies of God. We all are idolaters by heart, and we usually are idolatrizing ourselves. Sometimes it's his good gifts. And so we are born dead in sin, wanting sinful things. God loved us in spite of that, but could not be in relationship with sin. Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned, fallen short of God's glory. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, the penalty for sin, is death. That means separation from God. That means eternal separation from God and eternal punishment in hell. It's serious. I cannot even fully explain how serious that is. And yet, it says that the free gift of salvation, of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord... So the response is that I am to repent of my sinfulness where I think that I'm in charge or I get what I want and I lay aside my will and say, I know that my will is sinful. God, I want what you want. We repent. That means to turn from the old life, turn to God, declare Jesus as the new king of our life. That same word kurios in Greek means he is the master. It's actually kind of slave king language that I am making him my king. He is my master. I am the servant. I am willfully submitting to the God of creation, repenting from my sin. And then it says that I am to believe, this is Romans 10, 9 and 10, believe that God has raised him from the dead, that he really did die on the cross to pay my sin debt. He took on God's wrath in my place and then he rose from the dead. I don't earn anything. I simply turn from my sin to God in repentance and faith. Cool? Everybody with me? If you are not with me and you would like to be, let's have a conversation. But hopefully we recognize now this God that we serve is very, very powerful. And he's really, really good. And his will is going to get done. And that gives me a lot of comfort and hope.
Cool? All right, let's pray, and then we will fellowship over some food. Uh, Father God, in, uh, in this meager explanation of these two attributes of, of who you are, Lord, I ask you promise that the word of God does not return void. Lord, I have read your word today. I have sought to teach it in accordance with accurate exegesis. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you illuminate it to the people that we would have understanding that goes beyond even what we shared today, that we would, as we study Scripture, as we dwell on this, we would have understanding to see just how great you you are, God. Receive glory, bless the food as we fellowship, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.